If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Acts uh, chapter 1. I'm super, super excited um, to start this series. I've been talking about this series for, I feel like, several months. I've been super pumped to get into it. It's apparently like a youth pastor stereotype that we just say, I'm super excited all the time, which I just realized that I do say that all the time. And it's kind of like how you guys learned that I say it's crazy all the time, or that's crazy. Um, but I didn't know that it was a youth pastor stereotype until one of our parents kindly showed me a Facebook meme that was like, look at you being like a total youth pastor. So I didn't mean to say super excited three times already, but that's just the way it goes. Um, it's going to be an awesome series. Uh, I call it To the Nations, um, studying through, uh, I don't know if we're going to get through the entire book of Acts, uh, but there's so many things to be gleaned from this book for many reasons, but one of those reasons is that it's maybe the most, or one of the most unique uh, books in all of the scriptures, because it's a historical narrative. So whenever I say historical narr- narrative, I mean that it's telling a story, right? So it's telling us a, a series of events that actually happened in real life. Paul's letters, those are not narratives. Uh, those are, that's, that's hit Paul teaching us. Uh, the Psalms, the Proverbs, those are not narratives. Uh, but this is a historical narrative. It's giving a historical account of how the early church uh, was started, how the Holy Spirit sort of lit a fire underneath all these disciples and these apostles and grew the church. So looking at, in that same vein, I want to start with just some, a little bit of history, some backstory, not to the level of like 2,000 years ago in Acts, but just a little bit, 15 years ago, okay, it was 15 years ago, I was a wee lad, uh, we were in this, build, in this building, I was in a uh, I was at a church named Stonebridge, which this is the church you're in now, but it's Riverstone now. So the church named uh, Stonebridge, we were gathering at NCA. So Dylan, this is where Dylan goes to school, that's where we were having church at. Funny story, one time we did baptism, forgot to turn the hose off, flooded the gymnasium floor, and it was like, like I can't even explain it, like crazy warped for like three, we had to pay for them to get a brand new floor. Anyway, that was off topic. But NCA, we're meeting at NCA because we didn't have a church building, um, and we bought this big warehouse that we are now currently in. And if you would believe it, like this used to be just a warehouse. Like, we I mean, we're in a loading dock right now. You see the garage doors back there, like where we play wall ball? That was, that was a loading dock. Like that, it was, that was the intent of it. These like walls, weren't all, all these walls weren't here, just a warehouse. So we're just sitting uh, in that room that's now the sanctuary, but it was just a, I don't know what you call it, just a really big area where they were going to do stuff in a warehouse. We're sitting in there, uh, talk, our pastor is sort of talking, giving details about what's happening. I don't remember much from that night, other than there was a, a little fence in there, like, like, a, like a cage almost built of fence. I can't even explain. It was just a random cage for something. I don't know what it was for. But I remember that, and I remember that we were, we were eating KFC. So that's, that's another thing that I remember was KFC. But our pastor, he got up and spoke about church business, probably stuff about like how we're going to turn this building into whatever we're going to turn it into, all this stuff, right? I don't really remember any of it. Huh? I don't know. I honestly do not know. I was, I was a child, so I literally don't remember anybody that was there, except for my parents and the pastor, who I know. Um, so I don't really remember a lot of the business that was being talked about that night. But one thing I do remember is the pastor, or our pastor, our old pastor, uh, telling us, or speaking about the Club Illusions that was right across the street and telling us that someday we're going to close that place down and turn it into something better, something like for, for gospel ministry. Now, for the next, like, 10 years of that, for the, next, for the first, like, I want to say 10 to 11 years of this church being in this building, we didn't really do anything. <laughs> like, nothing happened. We didn't make any, like, any big efforts. But then whenever Pastor Michael got here, one of the first things that he said was we're going to try to shut that building down and try to turn it into something else. And then fast forward to whenever Josh Zuniga and we launched, or gets here, we launched Freeway South. We've been sort of going at it for the last like year and a half, trying to get it shut down. It finally gets shut down by the city. And now we have an opportunity right now to, to buy that place and turn it into a Freeway South, not just to shut it down. Like our goal wasn't just to, to destroy it like that. It was, it was more than that. We wanted to turn something that was at one point terrible into something that was being used for Christ. That was our mission. The goal of this church in that season and now was to make disciples inside and outside of this building. So our goal isn't to turn you guys into disciples and have you guys find new people for us to turn into disciples. It's for us to help you guys become disciples and so that you're making other disciples as you go. To make disciples like yourself, to go on mission 
disciples who plant churches, who go to Bible school, do all these things, to rather than just say, it'd be really nice if someday that place was shut down, and it'd be really nice if you were doing something awesome in that building, but to actually put action to it and say, we're going to raise a million dollars to turn that into a freeway south. That's the sort of discipleship we're talking about. To multiply. That's what Acts is about. Multiplication. It's about a few men, few women that followed God's vision for the church, followed what Christ was telling them for the church, and obeyed his commands, and watched the church spread like wildfire and flip the world upside down. Acts is a look at how that started, about how that wildfire spread. It's looking to look into what empowered the fire to spread, what the end results were. There are a number of things that we kind of have to cover. This is going to be an interesting message because usually there's just an introduction. So I was tempted to just do like the first three verses and just be like, a lot of times what's really, what's possible for preachers to do is to take the introduction to say, I'm going to just read these verses and we'll kind of learn something from it, but I'm just going to talk about other, like history and introduce the book. Now, I don't want to necessarily do that. We're going to go through verse 11 uh, this evening, but there are a few things that are important for us to know before we even jump in. The first is that Acts is a long book. It's a long book, just like Genesis. I'm going to remember how far we got into Genesis. It took us all year. We got all the way to like chapter 18, or maybe. I don't even know if we got that far. So there's a decent chance that we're not going to get through this entire book. In fact, there's a pretty good chance that we're not going to get through this entire book. So what I'm going to ask you to do as we're studying through this book is to, on your own, read it. Like, to be reading through Acts as we go. I want to send, I'm hopefully going to have, like, a little guy that will help you guys read through it as we're reading so you guys can, can keep up. But I don't want you to walk in here on a Wednesday that maybe we have to, we skip a few chapters and have you walk in like you're, like, in the middle of a movie or something and don't know the characters, Right? I don't want you to walk in when we're talking about Philip, be like, who the heck is Philip? Or who the heck is Stephen? Ask who these important characters are. So I'm challenging you guys to read this as we're studying through it. Secondly, Acts is both prescriptive and it's descriptive, but not either or. So whenever I say prescriptive, anyone want to take a guess of what I mean when I say prescriptive? Yeah. Can apply it to your own life, yes. So whenever you go to a doctor, what do they do? Prescribe you medicine, right? That's a recommendation. They're telling you, hey, you have this ailment. You should take this medication to hopefully fix that ailment. So there's some things in Scripture where the author is telling us how to do something. That's almost all of Paul's writings. He's telling us how to do certain things. Now, whenever I say descriptive, I mean that the author is telling us something that happened. Those two things don't always go together. So, for instance, in the story of Jonah, anybody remember how the uh, pagan sailors and Jonah figured out who was the person that caused the storm? Anybody remember how they, well, who caused the storm? It was Jonah, right? His disobedience. So they, they're left, these pagans, not Christians, are trying to figure out how the heck to, uh, how, how to figure out who caused this storm, what sin caused this storm. They obviously find out that Jonah did because they threw him out, or threw him off the boat. But how, did anyone know how they did it? How they actually figured out who it was? They cast lots. You know what casting lots is? Anyone have any idea? Yeah, pretty much, like drawing straws. Drawing straws, rolling dice, like shaking a magic eight ball. That's how they decided. That's how they figured out how, uh, who was the sinful party that was responsible for the storm. Now, did it work? Yeah, it worked. God in his sovereignty made whatever lot they cast, that he made it work. He showed them that it was Jonah. Now, does that mean that you should shake a magic eight ball the next time you're trying to make a decision in your life? No, it does not. Some things are prescriptive. Some things aren't. Some things are just descriptive. That's something we have to be careful with in Acts, because lastly, what we're going to see is that Acts is filled with a ton of signs and wonders, which is awesome, but they are not the point of Acts. They are not the reason why Acts is being written. This book is, has been argued about over and over again because of these signs and because of these wonders. But we're going to learn that some of these signs and wonders are descriptive. They're not necessarily prescriptive. Not necessarily something that, that the author is calling us to do. The point of Acts is the church and the church's disciples and the church's disciples making more disciples. And Luke, the author, recording these things as they happen, showing us 
how they were happening, how the Holy Spirit was doing this. This series is just a culmination, honestly, of the last two series that we've done on evangelism and the gifts of the Spirit. We're going to see... Um, Siri keeps listening to me today. This is like the fourth time it's happened. Um, now, we're going to see in this series this group, of, like I said, this group of men and women who go out and do the mission of God empowered by the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see actual uh, results, not just like great effort. We're going to see them like, ter- like not topple governments, but like leave governments trying to figure out what is happening. Like why, why are these people revolting? Why are they following this person that is not even here anymore? We're going to see God calling us as a result to preach Christ to the world, just like it is seen done in Acts. So we're going to start by reading Acts 1, verses 1 through 11. It says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Lord has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. This is the funny part, verse 10. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken from, up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we are um, excited to start our journey through Acts, Lord, to be able to see how the early church uh, caught on fire and lit the world on fire, Lord. Just pray that during this series that we would be constantly focused on how it is, this book is calling us to be uh, on mission for you constantly. Pray that during this specific message that we would be undistracted by outside things and we'd be focused solely on what you're calling us to do from this text, Lord. We just love and we praise you in everything that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so just a little introduction. Like I said, we can use verses 1 through 3. We can kind of just introduce the text. It's usually how it goes. That's how I'm kind of going to do it. Um, and it's, it's the, the introduction to this book is not unlike a lot of the other introductions where you see the author sort of just, just uh, well, for starters, if you've ever read a sequel, right, they usually talk about the first book. That's what makes this a little bit different than most introductions. We have the author addressing, first of all, someone specific, and then also mentioning uh, this first book. Does anyone know who the first book, what the first book is that he's mentioning? This is actually how we know who wrote it. It's Luke. He's talking about Luke. So this is a, this book is a, a sequel to the Gospel of Luke. And if you go back to the Gospel of Luke, you'll see that it is addressed to Theophilus. That's how we know that it's written by the same person. So we know just from this first verse, this is written by Luke, by the Apostle Luke. That is a sequel to his Gospel. Now before we even start looking at Acts, there's a few things that we need to know about the author, about Luke. We need to know who he is, like who is this dude, and what is his agenda. It's one of the things that I actually love about Luke compared to other authors. I love his testimony just as a person. Like he isn't, he isn't the, I mean, usually in scripture we see guys like Abraham who's just like a herder or a guy like Moses who has a stutter, all this stuff. Luke is kind of the opposite. Like he's super smart. He's, he's a physician. Uh, he's, a, he's a doctor. His, his Greek is credited as like some of the best in the, or the best in the New Testament. So he's an incredibly intelligent person. And this in and of itself, lends credibility to the message that he's going to have, that he's giving in the agenda before we even get to it. So whenever I say we can trust him because he's super intelligent, don't think that I'm telling you that, like, oh, he's just a smart guy, we can listen to him, right? God spoke through a ton of other not smart guys. Like, that's just how, I mean, scripture is mostly written by guys that shouldn't have been, shouldn't have been writing scripture. However, it does show us that he's not someone who's going to be convinced or won over by a few cheap tricks or weak arguments. He's not going to see a Facebook meme and be like, yep, that's it. That's the truth. He's going to have a little bit more discernment than that. 
He was most likely a Gentile, which makes him, interestingly enough, the only non-Jew to write a book in the Bible. Which also means that he grew up inherently less religious than other authors of Scripture. So even if he was, even if he was religious, it wasn't the religion that, that, that most of the Christians in his uh, age would have grown up following. And people who grow up in a more secular environment, people who in typically that are more educated, are almost always the ones that are less likely to be Christians. So I think they know, I mean, for starters, we talked about this with the, the same thing with the rich, right? Rich people are less likely to, or are more likely to depend on their money because whenever you have, physic, when you don't have physical need, it's hard to see spiritual need. The same applies to intellectualism. Now, you should use your brains and try to be smart. That's important. Read books. It's great. But at the same time, some people are too smart for their own good. Luke was in this category of someone who didn't grow up being taught the scriptures, who grew up as an incredibly smart person. And even in that, being sort of unlikely to be in the position that he was, he became a Christian. Not only did he become a Christian, he traveled with Paul on his missionary journeys, which is pretty incredible. Like Paul is writing how it's to the Jew and the Gentile, both of them, and to everybody else, even to, to Peter. Peter's like, that's kind of weird, like to the Gentiles too. Now, not only was like, Luke, writ, like, Luke was uh, preached to and converted, but he was a partner with Paul. Luke is a pretty extraordinary character in Scripture. His history and his profession give us an idea also of what his agenda was. So R.C. Sproul says that Luke was not here to write a religious tract. So his goal was not to convince you that Christ was real based on his opinions of who Jesus was. Like Paul in Romans, Paul is trying to convince you of who Jesus is. Trying to convince you that it's by faith alone that we're saved. That is not Luke's intent. He is here to write history. Objective history. Because more so, maybe more so than, any, than many other people in his time, he knew the importance of having proper history recorded for future generations. He is one of the greatest apologetic authors that we have in Scripture because we can read him and, again, have almost a— uh, we, can, we can take him as a credible source because we know how intelligent he was, how he would have tested these things against reality. One of the most controversial Christian doctrines still is the virgin birth. People, even Christians, still don't believe that. We're like, I don't know how that's possible. Like we, it just kind of blows our mind. Many Christians don't affirm that it happened. One of the greatest testimonies of the virgin birth comes from Luke's gospel. We read it in our last Christmas series. And Luke specifically goes in detail about this event because he knows, I'm a doctor. If they hear me say, yeah, it was real, they're going to take it seriously. Like they're not, it's it's going to be taken seriously if someone of his caliber is saying the things that he's saying. So like I could try to like teach you guys how to play guitar, but you should probably ask Jason for that because he's good at playing guitar and I'm not. Same applies. I can imagine him just sort of sitting next to his pals and they're like his doctor friends, and he's just like, yo, you believe this? Like the virgin birth you create? And he's like, oh yeah, that was real. I, I know it's real. Like that's the sort of credibility that he had. It was objective. He wasn't writing this to defend Christianity. It's one of the reasons why I love reading Jewish, uh, Jewish historians, because they, they don't have any like reason to, to write the things that they wrote about Jesus. They don't believe that he was a Messiah, and yet they're writing of his miracles, the writing of who he was, of his crucifixion, of his resurrection. Whenever you write from an objective perspective, it gives you more credibility. So if anyone knows me at all, and how, I, how my views are on, on baseball strategy, I hate bunting. Like if, if you know a bunting, you give up and out, I hate it. It's a terrible, terrible strategy. Now if I wrote about that, how terrible it was, I might make good arguments, but they'd be like, yeah, he, are, he hates it. Like, I, I know he's not going to write anything good about this. He hates it. Now, if someone more objective than me wrote about it, they might be inclined to listen. Luke is objective. His agenda is very simple. It's writing to record the spread of the early church to show how it happened. And he knows that it's ultimately going to testify to the Holy Spirit because he was there. He saw it. It's like, well, I know we watch the Holy Spirit do these things so that we don't have to sensationalize anything. We just have to say what happened. He gives this sort of recap in verses 2 through 3, talking about uh, sort of recapping the, the, book of, or the, the gospel of Luke, how, where they had been up until this point. So in, the, in verse 3, it says he, Jesus presented himself alive to them after suffering by many proofs. This many proofs is again, uh, is again Luke saying, we have, so, we have evidence that these things happened. Like these sufferings, the resurrection, all of these things, we have evidence. 
Even the fact that he's writing, appearing to them for 40 days, he didn't necessarily have to write that. The people who he's writing to knew Jesus appeared for 40 days. But he writes it nonetheless. He's saying, listen, he was here for 40 days speaking about the kingdom of God. He's recording the spread of the church. That is his agenda. Arkent Hughes says that Acts is the source book for the spread of early Christianity. Without it, we would know little about the apostolic church except what, we could, be, what could be gleaned from Paul's apostles or epistles. It is the chronicle of the spreading flame of the Holy Spirit. So without, without Acts, we really don't know what happened at the very beginning. Like we, don't really, we don't really know how the church spreads. So much of how the church operates comes from Acts, comes from the early church. But Hughes also adds that the study of Acts is particularly important to us because it shows us how to experience a stimulating, exciting life, how to make our lives count, which is ironically where Luke leaves off in his first gospel as he moves, or in his gospel as he moves into Acts. The disciples are asking, all right, now what? Like Jesus resurrected, he's hanging out with them. He's about, I mean, he's about to leave, but he, now they're asking, well, what do we do now? Like, what's our next step? So knowing the precursor, verses 1 through 3, knowing Luke's history, who he is, we see this question asked by the disciples. We see them start to dig in. This is where we start to see um, the intent of Acts, theologically. Like what we can take as Christians from this book. So the disciples right now are left without Jesus for the first time in over three years. Right? He had been, been with them for all this time. And in that, Luke sort of more or less uh, repeats what we already are told at the end of Luke. If you go back and read Luke, you're going to see very similar narrative before Jesus ascends. And he's almost like catching his audience up where he picked off, or, where, or picking up where he left off. And where they left off was Christ telling the disciples to not depart from Jerusalem when he ascends, but to wait for the promise of the Father. What is the promise of the Father? What was going to come? Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit was going to come. John baptized you with water, but you will also be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. That's where we're going. That's where we're leading into in the book of Acts. The disciples are waiting for the Holy Spirit to be poured out on them. But it's also important to recognize that they were somewhat in disbelief of what's happening right now. Now imagine, like, we have the benefit of hindsight in Scripture. We get to read these things and be like, well, why would they question anything? Like, Jesus was right there. Well, we have all the scriptures. Like, we, we know what they, the, the totality of scripture. We know everything that happened in Acts. But they didn't have that. Like, they didn't have the hindsight, didn't have church history to pull from. So they just saw Jesus in front of many people get killed on a cross just a few weeks earlier. And then he resurrects, and they're like, oh, well, that was crazy. That's kind of cool. What do we do now, though? Like, are we supposed to keep, are we just going to keep doing what we were doing before you got killed? So we know in theory what our mission is today, but they, they did not know what their mission was. They didn't know what was happening next. And we see that in verse 6 when they ask this question, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of God, or the kingdom to Israel? And the question, the way that I'm phrasing it is, what shall we do now? <laughs> now that you're back, where should we go? What should we do? So we're going to spend the rest of our time today evaluating that question and Jesus' answer. His answer is very simple. Go to the nations. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to go to the nations. And verse 6 through 8 is, in my opinion, the most crucial verses of this entire book. Jesus is back, and even though he told them that the Holy Spirit was coming, that he was leaving, their minds are still on Jesus reigning here and now. And I see two main reasons for this, and they are... I don't want to say completely my opinion, but mostly my opinion. So take these with a grain of salt. Study them yourself. I think I'm right. But, you know, there, some of them is, there's, there's some leeway here. Um, but I see two main reasons. First, they're showing us that they're just human beings. They're not like these divine creatures that knew everything that Jesus was trying to tell them, that understood everything that Jesus was trying to tell them. It's easy for us to say, like I said, how, how could you miss it? Jesus kept telling you that he's going to come back from the dead, then he was going to ascend, and that you're going to go on mission. He kept telling you that. But for them, happening in real time, they don't have the benefit of hindsight. I mean, we've been in situations, like in the moment, that we're kind of jarred, right? We're kind of like rattled. That's the phrase we used to use whenever I played baseball, rattled. Like whenever, some, like whenever some, a, few things, a few bad things happened, and all of a sudden your confidence is shaken, you might forget stuff. If like, for instance, on the stage, you know this. If I ever try to quote scripture like, that I don't have in my notes, I will always screw it up every time. 
Every time my memory will fail me. Now, imagine, that's such a basic example, but imagine spending three years with someone who's going to tell you, I'm going to die, and I'm going to raise from the dead. Then you're like, okay, I get it. You're going to raise from the dead. Really cool. Uh, whatever. And then it actually happens. He's like, sweet Moses. He, he was serious. He did it. Oh, my gosh. He rose from the dead. Maybe now it's time for him to take the meaning of the earth. Like, that's what I would think. That's what I would think. Like, if, so, I mean, I don't, have you guys seen Independence Day, the movie? Anyone? It's like an alien movie. Like, if, if aliens came, like, super, like, intelligent aliens came, and they were like, we are your overlords, I'd be like, yeah, probably, because you're aliens with spaceships. Like, you're in charge now. We don't really have a lot of say over that. So they're probably thinking the same thing. There's human men and women, not special divine beings. So I don't want to read this. I don't want to read this as the, the disciples being super stubborn. They're just not God. They're asking God. They're trying to figure out, what, like, why, what, what are we supposed to do next? Are you staying here? The second reason, this one is more of my own, 100% my own. Don't have any sort of like scholastic, like, I don't have any scholars that affirm this or theologians that I read. Maybe, maybe some people have read, written it. Um, but I think the other reason that their minds were set on Jesus' reign being now, why they're asking him, is it now time you're going to restore the kingdom? I think part of that reason was because they, were, they didn't want to endure the pain and the suffering that they knew was going to come. So I think, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that where you ask a question that you know the answer to. You know the answer to. You just don't want the answer. You don't want it to be true. So you ask someone, maybe, maybe they'll give you a different answer. Like maybe just in the right mood, they'll say something different and you won't have to deal with this thing you don't want to deal with. It's kind of how I feel uh, that the disciples are feeling, the apostles are feeling at this moment. Like they're trying to, uh, they're maybe not trying to get out of what they're being called to, but they maybe don't want to endure what they're being called to endure. This is one of the most um, loaded questions I can think of in Scripture. Whenever they ask him, uh, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Because there's so many, like, the direction, the trajectory of the world is shifted in Jesus' answer. Like, there was, they asked, there's this, he asked this question, or they asked this question to Jesus, and in this sort of moment in time, in this moment of silence, in between a question and an answer, there's a chance in their minds that he's going to say yes. And if he says yes, that means that eternity with Christ is secure. Like, everything is great. What we look forward to right now, in eternity of Christ returning, is there now. It's been ushered in. If he says yes, there's no pain, there's no suffering, no strife, no, no trouble. To, to quote uh, R. Kent Hughes again, he said that the ap- this, he called him the apostolic band. Right? So this group of men were uh, aflame with expectancy. Like they knew that something was happening. And they were asking Jesus, okay, is what's happening next going to be we're al- walking alongside of you, helping you reign on earth, or are you leaving? And for a split second, there was a chance that he was going to say, nope, you're reigning alongside with me. I'm staying here. I'm not leaving. They were ready for the Holy Spirit. They were excited for what he was going to do next. But I just think that they hoped that the Holy Spirit was going to say, Jesus isn't leaving. He's going to stay here. There's not going to be any mission uh, by yourselves. You're just going to be doing the same thing you've done for the last three years, walking around with Jesus. He said, this time is going to be way easier because now you have a Jesus that can defy death, that can do these crazy, that can like save. I mean, we already saw that Peter walked on water. We see all these crazy miracles. But whenever you can escape death, that's kind of like, okay, now we're like invincible. You're literally invincible. You have the power to escape death. I can kind of level with them on their desire to see this eternal reign on earth happen right now. I can level with their desire to see that happen. Like, wouldn't it be amazing if what we were called to do as Christians and as disciples didn't include pain or turmoil or strife, anxiety, depression, injustice? Wouldn't it be awesome if all that stuff didn't exist? Like we're all longing to get to the end whenever we can be with Christ and have none of that stuff. No more tears, no more pain. I can imagine the disciples, after what they would went through, they can see the writing on the wall here. They can see what happened to Jesus. They can, say, they can see that he resurrected, but also recognize that he resurrected because he was God, and they know that they are not God. And that some, they, they might get a little bit tough out here. So even at the inception of the church, the apostles are looking at Jesus and asking him, are we finally going to be reconciled with God? Are we finally going to get to be next to you forever? Jesus' answer, though, was no. It was not what was happening right now. It's not 
where Acts is going to take us. There is still work to be done, still missions to be done. We see that in verses 7 through 11. Jesus gives us the answer to that question, right? Question, what shall we do now? We're wondering, well, are we going to stay with Jesus or is he going to leave us? The answer to this question is to go to the nations. That he is going to ascend, which he does at the end of this text. I love the end of this text because it, I mean, again, I like how, like the sense of humor that God has sometimes. Of like, if, 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 two, if a dude like floated away, just like in the sky, like you, I mean, feel like everybody would just be staring and trying to figure out what just happened. These two men just dressed in white robes come out of nowhere and they're like, what are you looking at? Nothing to see here, just a guy floating into heaven. Like, that's kind of what I, like, I just think it's funny that, that God's just like, that's totally normal. Nothing, no, no, no weird stuff going on here. But he eventually does. Jesus gets lifted into heaven, which it happens very quickly after he tells him no, which is also kind of a tough one. I guess we're like ripping the band-aid off kind of thing. Like, nope, I'm leaving, see ya. He just, he just gets out of there real quick. But as I noted just a, uh, a minute ago, for those few seconds, they were, there was some hopeful uh, optimism, Right? Some hopeful optimism, but I think also a touch of fear. Like I said, whenever you have that question, that answer, that you know, like you know what the answer is, but you don't want to, to ask the question because maybe like it won't actually be true. Like that's, uh, that, that happens a lot, I think, like with medical stuff. I have seen that happen a lot. Where people, I've seen, uh, I think my grandpa was actually a good example of this, where like knew something was wrong, but like if I don't get it checked, like, Maybe nothing's wrong. Like, nothing's really wrong until you get it confirmed that something's wrong. Ironically enough, I learned this West lesson this week listening to or watching a show called Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee. It's a show hosted by, I don't know if you guys know who Jerry Seinfeld is. He's an older guy. Um, but he, had, he has this show where he literally just takes comedians out and they drive to a coffee shop. They drink coffee. They talk, make jokes, whatever. It's a, it's a funny show. But he, in one of these episodes, he talked to Stephen Colbert. He's like a late-night TV guy. Um, and they were, he was talking about this, this woman that he had given advice to. She was going through this divorce. She asked him what he thought that she should do. Like he, she asked him all the, she gave him the situation, and she was like, okay, so what do you think I should do? And he told her that she should probably do the thing that she doesn't want to do. The thing uh, that you least want to do is probably the right thing to do. And the reason that you don't want to do it is because you know you have to. Like that was kind of his advice. That's kind of how I feel the disciples feel. Or that's kind of how the, I think the disciples feel right now. Like naturally, they're desperate to be with Jesus, to have him reign forever so that they wouldn't have to deal with the persecution, the hands of, uh, of governing bodies or the hands of other religious bodies. I'm sure that Paul would have preferred to not be shipwrecked. Ship, him being shipwrecked was super lame. I'm sure he would have enjoyed not having a thorn in his side like he had. Or, as we're going to hear in a minute, I'm sure that John would have enjoyed, you know, not getting boiled alive in a vat of oil. He survives, but I'm sure he, that experience wasn't super fun. The desire to have Jesus not leave them, that was the thing that they least wanted to happen, for Christ to leave. But I think they knew that that was going to happen. So to go back to what I said earlier about this being one of the most loaded questions in Scripture, on one hand, he could have said yes and had all this stuff happen, have all the, his kingdom established. But now think about the implications of whenever he says no. Like whenever he says that's not, the answer, that's not what's happening. When Jesus said no, literally, don't, don't take this as hyperbole. Whenever Jesus says no in verse 7 and says that they're going to, to uh, go uh, preach to the nations, go to the nations, that was literally a death sentence for every single person listening. Literally a death sentence for every single person, except for John. John's the lucky one, the one that got boiled in a vat of oil and then got exiled. And spent, he, he, even then, like you can even see that he was permitted to live because he had, he had revelation to write. He had visions to, to, write, to write about in Revelation. But every other apostle, John is the only one that didn't die a violent death. And the only one that's even somewhat debatable is Matthew. But the debate isn't around whether he got martyred. The debate is, well, okay, or it isn't about whether he died a violent death. He got stabbed to death. They just don't know if it was for preaching the gospel, which would be super weird if he's the only one that just died randomly of violence and he wasn't because he was preaching the gospel. But they all died these violent deaths. They were all sort of given this, this death sentence whenever uh, Jesus said no. And I think they all sort of knew that. They're like the, the perils of these missions. And don't, I want to say two things here real quick. One, to be on mission for God, like we're going to learn about in the series, does not mean you're signing up for death sentence. I would say that most of us, if not all of us, are going to live lives, normal lives that don't end in us 
staring down like the barrel of a gun for Jesus. However, we should recognize that there are a lot of people doing just that right now. I think I was reading a commentary, and he, he was a R.C. Sproul commentary, and he said, he told a story about um, this guy that was, uh, he planted a church in the Middle East, and he was walking around with him, and his son was like, his young son was carrying a gun. He's like, well, why is he carrying a gun? He's like, well, our church been attacked 11 times this year. Like, that's a real thing for people. Like, this is now, this is still a reality for some people, that, that to preach Christ is to maybe not have a death sentence, but have a pretty darn close to death sentence. Like, every single day, living at risk. Not only were the disciples, the apostles, sort of denied this uh, a beautiful life in, with Christ whenever he said, no, I'm ascending, I'm going to go away for a minute. But they were guaranteed, almost completely guaranteed a life of suffering. All of this so that they could go to the nations. Now, like I said, this doesn't necessarily mean you're called to martyrdom. <laughs> like you have freaks like me or freaks like Michael that are like, burn me at the stake, let's go. Like that's, but that's not normal. That's maybe not a good thing either. Like I'm not saying, that's not, that's not necessarily what you're signing up for. However, the adventure, the adventure that the Holy Spirit is going to send us on as Christians is not one of ease. It's one of pain, of turmoil, rejection, persecution. So let's wrap up, wrap up this evening looking at this answer, at looking at Jesus' answer. There's, this is going to sound like a lot of things, but it's not. Five components of this answer. We're going to get through them real quick. But in verse 8, there's, there's five components that, I prom- that we're going to walk through um, that we see in verses, I think, 7 through 8 specifically. We're going to see the power that, that, that drives this ministry. Then we're going to see domestic, or, uh, local ministry, domestic ministry, and international ministry, and then finally glorification. So I'll get to all those things. But first, power. Verse 8 says that we're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. This power was the power that they had to evangelize successfully. It's the power that gave them the gall to evangelize. And it's the power that gives you the gall to evangelize. The ability to successfully call out friends and neighbors and co-workers to Christ. It's also power, a unique power, that was not carried by believers in uh, the days before Pentecost. So as a Christian, with the Holy Spirit, we have sort of like an ability that those guys didn't have. We have, with this Holy Spirit, the ability to fight sin, to, uh, to be given spiritual gifts, to have a uh, comforter as a Holy Spirit, to have someone who gives us guidance, who leads us, who pushes us. You've God not only near you, but inside you at all times as Christians. And this power, though, is even though it's for personal development, personal spiritual development, comfort, all those things, it is primarily for ministry, right? So that's the second component, local ministry. Verse 8, this is the mission statement of this book and also just for the Christian life in general. Jesus said, it's said in such a way that he, he kind of gives this expanding bubble of the mission of Acts. It's also an outline for Acts, which we'll get to in a minute. But it starts with Jerusalem which for them was their home. That's where this call starts. This local ministry can be taken uh, in, in, in one of two ways. First, it's, natu- it's just where we live, right? So he's saying, he's telling the disciples, you're going to disciple people here. There are people in Jerusalem that you're going to call to Christ. Now for us, we don't live in Jerusalem, but there is ministry to be done in Nixa, in Republic, in Springfield, in Ozark. But it's also within the church. Jerusalem was this religious capital of their day. He's saying that there, there are people that are attending gatherings every day, that, or that attend gatherings every week, that are active in the local ministry. And there's still ministry work to be done there. Still stuff to be done. It's one of the most important aspects of the church gathering. We don't forsake the church gathering to evangelize the people, to go on mission. We need the church gathering. Like we need this to grow. So some of you might not be called to full missions work or, or full-time missions work or ministry work, but you will always live somewhere. You'll always be around people. You're always going to be hopefully plugged in to a local church. And there's always local ministry to be done in your schools, your workplaces, in your homes. There are people to be discipling. Third, we see domestic ministries. When I say domestic, I mean like national, so like America. Think America. Or like cities around us. 
Like I said, this verse gives us kind of an outline for Acts. The first seven chapters of Acts are spent in Jerusalem. The next four are focused on Judea and Sumeria, which are kind of these neighboring people groups. And then 13 through 28 is the ends of the earth, where they're like spreading it beyond their immediate, or where they are, uh, their immediate distance is, I guess, the best way to put it. So they knew they needed to go to their people. They knew that Jerusalem needed the gospel, but they also knew, or they were also being told that Judea and Samaria needed the gospel as well. So not just people who are supposedly more religious, but also people who have rejected Christ outright or are less desirable. Like Samaria is not like an unintentional uh, party here. It's not just like, well, Samaria was one of the neighboring towns. No, it's not that. He's specifically saying, you know what Samaria is. You know who those people are. And yeah, you're going there too. <laughs> like you're going to go to that place too. We should be praying for our nation. We should be praying for, um, we should be planting churches in unchurched areas. So the, the first thing that came to my head whenever I thought of Samaria in our context is like Seattle. Like just the most unchurched, ungodly place. And they need to have planted, churches planted there. We need churches planted in secular cities that don't have Jesus. We should be taking domestic missions trips, not just international mission trips. We need to be taking domestic missions trips to preach the gospel to our nation. But we also see this, though, this international mission. That's a fourth thing. Jesus didn't just say our nation, but to all nations. And the irony of us reading that now is that we are the result of their mission. So think about where this was written and who this was written to. This was written to not Gentiles like us into Jewish people in the Middle East, the way that we think of Africa and Asia, the way we think of like South America, that's how they thought of us. Like first of all, a lot of them didn't even know we existed. They didn't, I mean, we didn't exist technically, but they didn't even know that like North America was a thing. But that's what Jesus was saying. Like you're going to go to North America. You're going to go to those areas and you're going to take the gospel there too. We're the result of this mission, which is crazy. That we all get, you got all the way over to where we are. We're not Jews, we're not Samaritans. We were outsiders that we needed the, that needed the gospel and that had the gospel brought to us. So Jesus is calling us to, to reach people at our homes, reach people in our surrounding areas, to reach people around the world. And we do it because of this fifth component, is glorification. We read that in the very last verse. It says, the men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Is Jesus who has taken or who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go. Glorification. Eventually, all of this work, all of this toil will be worth it. Eventually, he'll come. Eventually, he'll be back. And for good, not temporarily. He's going to return just as he came. So as we begin this series on Acts, I don't want us to lose sight on, uh, or of the, the end game of Acts. The end game of what we're going to learn here. That eventually... Eventually, Jesus will return, and eventually, we're going to be in perfect union with our Creator once again. We are not there yet. That is not what the time that we exist in. And in this time, we are called to make disciples, to take this gospel to the people around us, to get up off the bench, to go to work, and not just show up and sit in a church chair maybe twice a week, but to actually work, to do kingdom work. I keep thinking of that, the quote from earlier, that this book shows us how to live an exciting life and a life that counts. I think of that as an athlete. My favorite games, my favorite experiences were games where I walked off the field knowing that literally every ounce of effort that I had was left on the field, like everything I had. Like that's, that's the best night's sleep, even, even just like not even in sports, even just in work. When I, would, I used to, at the very beginning, whenever I did, or was doing church stuff, I did more technical stuff, so I remember days where I'd come in, spend all day like working in the youth room, just like doing lights or whatever I might do, and I'd get home, I'd feel great. Like I did something today. Like I did something meaningful today. They didn't just sit around and do nothing. We want to live a life that counts. We have finite lives. We should make the most of them. We should make them count. The disciples could have easily said, Jesus is gone. Time to take a break. Been at this thing for three years time to take a rest. They didn't. It's what Acts is all about. It's a small group of men and women that decided to get up off the bench and to go and do something, to make their lives count, to preach the gospel. 
So we need to ask ourselves this question tonight as we, as we look forward into this series about just asking us ourselves, where are we? Like, where are we at as Christians? Because Acts is going to challenge us, I think, more than most books we've read. There are many facets to, this, to the application of this book. For starters, this, when it comes to like, evangelism, when it comes to discipleship, like, this group is going to go wherever you decide to take it. Like, I, I say that often, but this group goes as far as you guys go. So, for example, Escalate's going to come up pretty quick. Like it's, it's like a month and a half away. And we always have a great time at Escalate. Sean's there. We're going to have a guest speaker this year. Uh, it's going to be awesome. Like it's going to be a fun time. We're going to grow a lot. But your friends need Escalate, too. <laughs> like your non-Christian friends need that, too. Like they need to come somewhere to have the gospel preached to them, to be called to, to more than just what they're going, than the life that they think they're called to. I don't know what's happening right now. The Holy Spirit? I disagree. This is unfortunate. This thing's giving me like a seizure. Jay, bring it up here. I'll fix it. Oh my gosh, I can't even look back at it. What? Hey, there we go. That, that was fun. Maybe I said something that I shouldn't. Maybe I said something I shouldn't have, and like, yeah, hopefully I didn't. We'll see. No, but your friends are called to that life as well, called to something greater, a, a greater purpose. So what is stopping you from, from taking action in that person's life, to call your friends, your family, your coworkers to this? What's stopping you from, from talking to them about this stuff? I don't want to just do the invite to church thing. We're going to get to that. But what's stopping you from having conversations with people? From talking to your friends about Christ? From asking them these questions? Now, this isn't just, like, like, like uh, I said earlier, this isn't just a, like a religious tract. I'm not saying to go up to your friends, be like, y'all ever heard of Jesus? Like, I don't, I'm not telling you just to do that. But, like, like, have conversations with people around you. Like, invest in people around you. One of the most awesome stories in, in Acts is Philip just coming across this random dude. This random guy. That just he was in a wagon and just talk, started talking to him. And then he, he gets saved and he gets baptized. Like, what's stopping us from doing that? What's, what's stopping us from taking the gospel to people around us, from inviting them to either to midweek, to, to church on Sunday, to escalate? The disciples, they were itching to get after it. Like, they, like what's crazy about this story is there was, I feel like, like I said, a, a touch of fear in their lives. But like, the second that Jesus was like, nope, that's not what's happening, I'm going to ascend, and then you're going to go, they did exactly that. They went, they waited on the Holy Spirit. We're going to read about Pentecost in a few weeks, which is going to be bonkers. It's one of my favorite texts in all of Scripture. And then they're going to, Peter, this gigantic coward who denied Jesus three times, who did all this terrible stuff. He's a giant idiot on earth before Pentecost. is going to preach before thousands of people, a hostile crowd, like a Chiefs fan preaching in front of a Broncos crowd. And he's going to convert 3,000 people, over 3,000 people. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. But do we have the same sort of zealousness? You realize that the Holy Spirit they had was not like a roided up Holy Spirit. It didn't have like some special mixture. It's the same Holy Spirit that we have. The same one, the same zealousness zealousness that they had, we can have. So are we going to, are we content to just stay complacent? to stay on the bench, to show up on Sundays, on Wednesdays, and call it good? Are we content to do that? Our purpose is to make disciples through the power of the Holy Spirit. We're going to see that time and time again in this series. But it's time for us to actually do it ourselves. I'm going to challenge you to do this this fall more than I think I ever have. I challenge you to do two things. To, to share and live the gospel. So when I say live the gospel, I mean don't just play both sides. Don't, don't, don't be someone completely different in school or completely different when you're not talking about Christ. Do not be the kid with a church life and a real life. Make it your only life. Make it the only one that you have. Instead of deserting those friends that you might think you need to desert to be a Christian, bring them to church. Talk to them about Jesus. Show them what Christ has done in your life, what he wants to do for them. Like I said, we're gonna, we were going to get to this. Invite them to church. I hate these invite to church. It's like against 
everything inside me to be like, invite your friends to church. Like, it, it sounds really bad. But like, my, in my head, I think like, well, it's just a numbers thing. We just want to get people in here for numbers. That's not it, though. We invite people to church because the fellowship that we have here, the growth, the, cha- the, the way that we're challenged every single week to sit under the preaching and teaching of the scriptures, to sing together, to worship together, is something that literally, and this is not a hyperbole, that literally every person breathing needs. So if your friends are breathing at school, they need this fellowship. We should be inviting them in. I hear all the time that how much people love, like, and maybe not all the time, but I mean, I hear fairly regularly how much like, we enjoy the culture that we have, like the tight-knit culture. Imagine loving something and then not wanting to invite other people into that. Like, think, just think about the friends that you have right now for a second. Because I can think of the friends that I had in high school. Think about the busted-up family lives that they have. Think about the busted-up uh, past that they have, the abuses that they've dealt with, the cards that they've been handed. They need this. <laughs> they need Christ. Not just, not just the, well, he's kind of prettied up. She's kind of prettied up. He, he, she will beha- she'll behave in church, so maybe we can bring her. Or he'll behave in church, so we, we can bring him. We should be inviting people around us to come into this community with us. And like I said, I'm, I'm hesitant to do these, these things where it's like invite, like invite a friend, get a free something. I don't like doing like bait and switch stuff. But if there's one thing that I know about life, it's that we need Jesus and we need the church. The two things. We need Christ and we need the church. We don't get to choose one or the other. Your friends need church. So invite people to church. Invite them to escalate. Invite them to life group. Invite them to hangouts. All this, though, it's all dependent on our own walk, on where you are as a Christian, how receptive you are or are going to be to what this book is going to tell us. Thank you.